Okay, now you could argue that what we're going to do today, just now, is a little bit strange. You could argue that what we're going to do uh, for our time in a sermon is a little bit unusual. Because this morning what we're going to do is we're going to consider communion without actually having that as part of the service itself. So we are going to consider, we're going to think about, we're going to study the Lord's Supper. But as you can see from the absence of a table in front of me, we're not actually going to go as a congregation to the Lord's table today. So you you could be sitting there thinking, that's a bit strange, that's a little bit uh, unusual. I do actually think though that this potentially could be greatly beneficial for us this morning. You see, why? Isn't it true that sometimes the communion part of a service can pass us by in a bit of a blur? Isn't that right? Now think about the makeup of our congregation. We are either in here so familiar with the free church... Like so familiar with the readings at communion, the singings at communion, the order of communion, the way it's done. So familiar with what happens that it just becomes kind of sometimes just a routine. We know what's going to happen. It's fine. It passes us by. It's either that or think about the makeup of the congregation. Some of us are so unfamiliar with the Reformed Church and their traditions of the Reformed Church, what happens? You get to communion, get to the Lord's Supper, and it just races by in this kind of ritualistic blur. So do you see what I'm I'm saying here? If we just pause, and if we think about what God has to say about the Lord's Supper, what happens? That sets us up nicely, not just for the next time we go to the table, It sets us up for every single time from here on in that we go to the Lord's table until he returns. So this morning, we're going to consider communion. We're going to consider the Lord's Supper. And I think in this portion of Scripture that Adrian read for us, I think we see a number of truths and important lessons about the Lord's table. And they all begin with S. Uh, So the first thing that we've got to notice here, I think, is the significance of the Lord's Supper. We got that? The significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you've been part of LCPC for the last few months, I'm hoping that the very beginning of the section of Scripture seems remarkably familiar to you. I wonder if you see why. You see what happens? Just as in, I think it is chapter 11, just as there Jesus sent two disciples on ahead of him into Jerusalem to prepare a donkey. Do you remember that? What happens here? Jesus sends two disciples into Jerusalem ahead of him to prepare a meal. So I'm hoping it's ringing bells with us. We see uh, Jesus' plan. We see this a familiar pattern here. Now, dare I say that I think I can maybe guess a question you might be asking of the text at this point. Are you asking, is this prophetic power that we've got on display? Do you see what I mean by that? Like when Jesus says to the disciples, right, you're going to go into Jerusalem and you are going to meet a man. And this is a man who is going to be carrying a water jar. What's that? 
Like, is that, is it divine uh, sort of foreknowledge? Is it prophetic power by Jesus? Or is he just simply kind of prearranged a kind of sign, a signal for the disciples when they get in and say, what do you think it is? I don't think it matters much. I think it can be either of those things. Friends, what I think is much, much more important is that you notice the care that Jesus takes all the way through this section. Did you see that? When Did you notice it? Have you ever noticed that when you've read that section before? Like, have you noticed that for, for Jesus here, absolutely everything has got to be right. He's meticulous. Everything's got to be bang on. Did you notice that? Now think about it. There's going to be a certain man and he's going to take you to a certain specific house. And then in that house, you see how everything's right? There's going to be a specific room in that house. And then he says to the disciples, guess what? Even the room, even the room has got to be bang on. It's got to be a certain size. It's got to be a large room. Guess what? It's got to be furnished and furnished in a specific way. And then when the disciples get in there, what do they have to do? They, they, they've, they've got to make everything right. You've got to get everything ready. Like the word prepare or preparation, it appears time and time and time again. For Jesus here, everything's got to be right, friends. Do you see why that is? It's because what is going to happen in this section this morning is utterly, utterly essential in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus knows this meal... This Lord's Supper that he's about to institute, he knows this is critical to the future health of his church. He knows this is important. And maybe even in that, there's a challenge for you and for me. Now, I'll put it by way of a statement, and you see if you agree with the statement, friend. That in the Reformed Church in the 21st century... We are not holding the Lord's Supper in as high regard as we should. Now take that down to your own personal point of view. Let's say tomorrow somebody comes to you, one of your friends, and says, I know you go to church. See, what sort of things happen in your church? What are we going to say? We're going to say preaching, aren't we? Uh, we're going to say prayer happens in the church. We read the Bible. We, we might even mention things like the fellowship lunch and that sort of thing. Now, we're going to have to be talking for an awful long time before we work down that list. And we say to our friend, oh, and the Lord's Supper. Aren't we? Like, isn't it the case that uh, the Lord's Supper communion almost kind of doesn't register the way that it should? Now, why is that? Like, is it that we in the Reformed Church in the 21st century are maybe just a little bit allergic to ceremony? Do you think that's part of it? That maybe because of some of the countries we come from and some of our church background, we're desperate not to be seen as overtly liturgical. Is that maybe part of it? We're trying to desperately get away. We're not Catholics. Like we're different from the Catholic Church. So what do we do? We play the idea of the Lord's Supper and communion down. Well, I'm asking whether you see this morning the lesson in the portion of Scripture. Now, don't get it wrong. The lesson is not that communion is important. 
What is the lesson? It is that communion is important to Christ. We see here the significance of the Lord's Supper. Okay, I'll begin with this. Second thing, we see here the self-inquiry of the Lord's Supper. You got it? The self-inquiry of the Lord's Supper. Now, our denomination, if you're visiting us and you just come through the door, we are part of what is called the Free Church of Scotland. The Free Church of Scotland. And our denomination traditionally has played a, placed a lot of emphasis on what are called preparatory services for the Lord's Supper. So going back a little bit, traditionally in the Reformed Church, especially in Scotland, you would go to the Lord's Supper once every quarter of the year. And so what would happen is that in the week leading up to the Sunday, churches would have services every single day of the week leading up to the Sunday in order for people to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds for, for going to the table. I'm not exaggerating when I say uh, that if it's morning and evening, sometimes some congregations might have 15, 16 uh, services uh, before they go to the Sunday. Now, we we don't do that in here for various reasons. Access to the building, keep, keep, that's not the point. The point is, is it biblical? Like this idea of you and I preparing, considering our hearts before the Lord's Supper, is that a biblical idea? Well, I think you can see here what happens. You get into verse 17, and the Passover feast begins. Now, I think I'll just say this to you. The Passover feast, as you probably know, was a meal in various different parts. And this is important for later on in the sermon. It was a meal that involved drinking four symbolic cups at various points in the service. You got it, four symbolic cups, various points in the Passover feast. Now, can you see what happens when they begin to eat? Now, imagine the scene, this upper room, large room, furnished. We've got it. Preparations made. They begin the part. What happens? Jesus drops a bombshell. Because what does he say to these men? He says, very soon, I am going to be betrayed. Like, can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine the silence that would have fallen in that place? You would have been able, wouldn't you, to cut the tension with a knife. I'm soon about to be betrayed. Now, here is my question for you. We have to wrestle with this question. Why does he tell them? Like, Jesus does not have to tell his disciples that he's about to be betrayed. Isn't it the case, friends, some of us, often we keep things from people we love so that they won't worry. We might not tell the kids some things or tell our spouse or our our boyfriend. We, We keep stuff sometimes from the people we love so they won't get anxious. Why doesn't he do that? Like, why does he tell them about the betrayal? Let me give you a couple of answers to that. One, what he's doing is he is confirming the sovereignty of God 
Now you see what I mean, because what does Jesus do here? He doesn't just say, do you know what, I think I'm going to be betrayed. What does he say? He even tells them, not just that he will be betrayed, he even tells them who is going to do it. He says, do you know what, I know it's going to be one of you. Do you see what Jesus is doing at this point? He's saying his church, he's saying to these men, see when I'm arrested, don't think this is taking me by surprise. Don't think that this coming arrest is going to come out from left field and is a shock to me. He's saying, I know all about this in advance. He even here uses the words we've just sung together. He even uses verses from Psalm 41 that speak of the betrayal being prophesied and foretold. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying even the most wicked act in history, even the betrayal, is within the knowledge and the control and the sovereignty of Almighty God. I said two reasons, didn't I? Why does he tell them about the betrayal? He tells them to push those Christians, those men... To self-inquiry. So I'll ask you to do this, even the boys and girls. I know you're working hard in your worksheets, boys and girls. But if you look at verse 19, friends, have a look at verse 19. So I want us to note how the disciples react. This bomb is dropped in them. Their Lord is about to be betrayed. How do they react? Verse 19. The sorrowful were told that. How would you describe it? Would you say they're contemplative? Because look at the question they, they, they ask. They ask, is it, is it I? Now do you see, come on, do you see, it's so clever, it's genius. Do you see why they're asking that question? It's because despite the fact that Jesus knows it's Judas, he hasn't told them that. All he said at this point is that it's one of you. It's one of you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's pushing them to ask of themselves, Is it me? Like, how do I regard Jesus of Nazareth? Is it me that is betraying him? Do do, do you see it? If you see that, then surely you see the lesson here. Friends, self-inquiry is a vital component of communion. Do you see what it is that we're supposed to do before we come to the table of the Lord? We are to bow before God and we are to assess our hearts. You and I, before we come to communion, we're to ask, could I betray him? Am I betraying him by my unbelief? Do I trust in Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Is he my Lord? If I sought him for forgiveness of my sin, we ask that of ourselves. In fact, as always, isn't it the Westminster Confession of Faith that puts it best of all? The confession says this. It says about the Lord's Supper, it says, It is required of the church that they examine themselves. And of what? What are we supposed to think about? We examine ourselves of our knowledge to discern God's body, of our faith to feed upon him, of our repentance, of our love, and of our new belief. Do you see what we've got here? Do you see it? Friends, our God encourages us prior to the table to inquire of ourselves. So we have significance 
and we have self-inquiry. Third S. Third S. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper. One of the main areas of controversy in the 21st century between the church and our culture in the United Kingdom, one of the great areas of controversy is, of course, the meaning of marriage. And it is the most controversial issue of all, perhaps, isn't it? I think if you and I wrestle with that, and if we try and distill the disagreement down a lot of, not all of but a lot of the disagreement surrounds what we believe about when marriage began you understand what I I mean if you ask the people in society what would they say about marriage, they would say that marriage is a convention, it's a custom that is kind of gradually just evolved by man over the years and it spread across the world. That's marriage. What does the church say to that? What do we believe? We believe, no. We believe that there was actually one specific moment in time, a point in history, where Almighty God institutes marriage. He creates marriage. Isn't that right? Genesis 2, what happens? The Almighty Sovereign God of all the earth, He institutes marriage. Now, you're with me when I say that there's no sort of uh, controversy about the timing of the institution of the Lord's Supper. What do you know? When was the Lord's Supper instituted? Here in front of us in Mark 14, towards the end of the Passover feast. Now, this is what I want to say, though. As Jesus now institutes the Supper, you perhaps notice that two elements come to the fore. And would you forgive me, or permit me at least, to speak to the children of the church just for a a moment or two, because I want to put them to the test, basically, and playing the role of the cruel minister at the moment. Uh, So, boys and girls, you listening? I want you to shout out as loud as you can. You're listening. Hope you're going to have to at least follow the reading of the sermon. So this is crunch time for you. There are two main elements in the Lord's Supper, boys and girls. Two things. You normally find them on the table here. What are, boys and girls, the two main elements in the Lord's Supper? Shout them out so that I can hear them. Love it. Look at that. That's fantastic. Friends, let's take the first of those. Bread. In all seriousness, when the bread is passed to you around the church, what is it you are thinking? What is it you're considering when you take that bread at the Lord's Supper? Is it not the case that very often these elements merge into the same meaning for you and for me as Christians? Isn't that right? Like, what do we think about? What is it? Bread is the death of Jesus. When we think bread, wine, it's okay, it's the flesh and it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It kind of merges into one. That's the meaning, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is the meaning. But I want you to see that there is more to the meaning of the bread than just that. 
See, the word that Mark uses here, Jesus says, the bread is my body. And you see that word there, it means a lot more than just Jesus' flesh. It means a lot more than his physical self or his physical death. The word there means the whole of Jesus' being. It means the bread is himself. It is his all. So do you see what's happening here? Like in Mark, the emphasis is less on the breaking of the bread than the distribution of the bread. Do you see what he's saying? When we take bread, when we take these little morsels of, of bread at the communion, what is happening? Christ is himself with us. Do you understand? Do you see that? You take the bread. The bread speaks to his real but spiritual presence abiding closely with his people at the table. It's a marvelous thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. What happens when you take the morsel of bread? The Lord of glory. He draws near and he draws near to you in the communion. There's a second element. Boys and girls, bread and bread and wine. Now, what did I say a moment ago? I said that there were four symbolic cups that were taken, that were drunk at the Passover feast, didn't I? Four cups. Now, I think I need you to understand that this cup that Jesus picks up in this upper room in the Passover feast, to institute the supper, it was the third cup. And it was a cup that was usually drunk to a reading about God's coming salvation. And so I'm saying, when you see it in that light, isn't it marvelous to see the meaning that Christ attaches to this cup? Because what is the cup at communion? What is it? It is his blood. It is how that salvation would come. It is Jesus saying that his life would be poured out. His blood, his lifeblood poured out for the salvation of those who are his. But now, come on. Look at verse 24 and look how Jesus describes the cup. Look at verse 24. It is the blood of the covenant. And I'm saying to you, that also should color your understanding of what happens at the Lord's table. It's not just blood. It's the blood of the covenant. Now you think about earlier reading. Gabriel came up, what did he read? Exodus 24. Do you see it? That just as in the Old Testament, the people of God had blood thrown on them. They had blood sprinkled on them as a way of confirming their part of the covenant. What happens when you take that vessel at communion? What's happening? Do you understand in here? The covenant is being renewed. I think that is precious, friend. You take that cup at communion. You take it to your lips and you drink it. What is happening? God spiritually is confirming you again as part of his family. You are his. That is what the cup speaks to. You are part of the covenant community of faith. Isn't it marvelous? Like we just, it passes in a blur. 
And we think it's about Jesus' death. And we move on to see it is, but it's more. Jesus is with us in communion. He's saying, you are mine. You belong to Jesus. And all through the spilt blood of the Lamb. So we see the significance of the Lord's Supper. The self-inquiry of the Lord's Supper. We see the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. And then we end with the suspense of the Lord's Supper. There are a lot of foodies at London City Presbyterian Church. And there have been over the years a lot of foodies. A lot of people who will like to go out for a fancy meal and almost invariably take a photo of uh, their tucker before they devour it. Uh, well, as these foodies would probably confirm, apparently what happens at a Michelin star restaurant is that very often a meal will be prefaced by what is called an amuse-bouche. Aren't we very sophisticated this, this morning? An amuse-bouche. I'm sure you know what an amuse-bouche is. It is a little mouthful of food. And it's to serve two purposes, I think. An amuse-bouche gives the chef the opportunity to display his artistry in just a little morsel of food. But there's a second reason, and this is the one, this is why I mention it. An amuse-bouche is also to prepare the palate. You know, to open up the palate, open up the taste buds, to prepare the person for this grand, sophisticated meal that is coming their way, right? An amuse-bouche. Now, again, in all seriousness, I say this to you. I think, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, the same could be said of the Lord's Supper. That the Lord's Supper is spiritually an amuse-bouche. Now, just to see what I mean, look at verse 25 and how Jesus ends this. Have a look at the, the very end. What does he say? He says, he will not drink again until he drinks anew in the kingdom of God. Now, what I think is marvelous and what we might very well miss is the expectation the disciples would have had at that point. Because what did I see a second ago? I said Jesus has had three of the four cups that would have taken place in the Passover fellowship. Now, do you see it? Just at the moment when the disciples are expecting him to finish off the fellowship and have the last cup of the Passover, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, nah, I, I'm not going to drink it. They're looking at him and he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to have the fourth cup. I'm not going to drink it until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Look, I'm saying to you, friends, do you see what Jesus Christ is doing here and in the Lord's Supper? He's pointing you forward. Do you see that in the Lord's Supper there should be expectation even of heaven? That the Lord's Supper is anticipatory. That it's really just an aperitif for a greater meal that's going to come. It is. It is an amuse-bouche. Do you see? That one day God truly is going to call his people to himself. 
And what will happen there? That we will enjoy the meal that just now that we are waiting for. That there in glory we will enjoy that banquet. And what shall we see when we gather there? We shall see the lamb, the real Passover lamb. And he will come down off his throne. And he will come to his table. And before your very eyes, he will pick up the fourth and the last cup. And he will put it to his lips. And the Lord Jesus Christ will drink. Do you see what is happening in the Lord's Supper? We are remembering the death of Christ. But our eyes are being pushed forward to the coming glory. Now I, I uh, said earlier on, second point, that self-inquiry is utterly key before you and I go to the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to say this to you this morning. Right now, as you gather in this place here, self-inquiry is also essential. I would ask you just now to ask off your own heart, how do I stand before the living God? Are you, friend, betraying Jesus? Are you with Judas on that? Are you resisting the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you standing against the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing to bow the knee to him? I just want to read to you what Jesus says about the betrayer. He says it would be better for that man if he quite simply never ever been born. I don't need to stress that to you. Surely you see it is a terrible, terrible thing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But if, just now, as you examine your heart, you know by God's grace alone, you have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know that he is your savior, you love him by grace, then aren't you with me when I say communion is awesome? Isn't it? When you begin to peel away, begin to look at it, begin to study, isn't the Lord's Supper marvelous this visual representation of what christ has done it is a beautiful thing and we should praise him for it but what else should we do more than that we should praise god for the gospel that the lord's supper points you to isn't that right how do we end we end praising god that the lord jesus christ his lamb was willing to lay his life down Lay his life down for us, for his people, for his friends. Let's pray.